Hi friends, I'm Olivia. And I'm Katie. And we are Podcast by Proxy. Welcome. We are live on air. (laughs) What are we, a radio show now? Yeah. The second we're in person, we change our whole dynamic. Yeah, totally. Can you imagine if I was actually live, though? Yikes. No. (laughs) I hear what the live, air quotes, version is, and it's not pretty on either of our parts. Mm, No, it's not. We are going to be live soon, though. We will be live on the 4 Too Many podcast live Instagram uh, Tuesday night, October 26th, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Today we're talking about Gilbert Paul Jordan, and he is a serial killer from Vancouver, British Columbia. And this is actually a listener suggestion from Love uh, Danielle. She's a friend of mine, but she also gives the best listener suggestions, honestly. She was the one that suggested Elisa Lamb. Back in the day. That was, and that was before the Netflix documentary came out. Anyways, so I'm just going to get right into it because it's a wild ride and we're going to be here a while. So I think we should just go. Let's start this ride then. Start from the beginning. Gilbert was born Gilbert Paul Elsie on December 12th, 1931 in Vancouver, British Columbia. His parents were Winifred and Jack Elsie and he was their second child after an older brother named Bud. It's noted in multiple sources that he preferred the name Paul over Gilbert. So for the remainder of the episode, I will be referring to him as Gilbert. Good old Gil. Yeah. Sorry. I like Gilbert and Bud. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Those aren't Vancouver normal names you'd hear. They're also just wildly different. I feel like Bud and Gilbert are not from the same, like... Gilbert sounds real dorky and nerdy to me, and Bud sounds very, like, outdoorsy and farm kid. Yeah, they're just not from the same, like, naming family, in my opinion. They sound like... Maybe mom picked one and dad picked one. (laughs) Who knows? He changed his last name in 1965. You'll see why when we get there. His mother, Winifred, was a sales clerk. His father, Jack, was a jack of many trades. He did occupations such as a railway man, a bus driver, a conductor, and later he became a banker. And Gilbert pretty much refused to speak openly about his family later in life to protect his brother Bud, so we don't really know a ton about his younger life, but by all accounts, he had a pretty average childhood. There's no real early trauma that we know of. His parents, uh, they divorced when both him and Bud were quite young, and it was said to be amicable. Both of his parents remarried, and... Gilbert and Bud basically lived full-time with their father. Um, Bud actually spoke out. He said that they were raised by loving parents, but that Gilbert was often recognized as a strange and misunderstood child. Pretty odd that whenever I hear that children went to live with the dad. Yeah, in this case, maybe it was, like... Like, if it's the right fit, it's the right fit. It's just at that time. I'm just thinking it's the 30s and maybe she didn't have the means to, like, provide for them until she remarried, not trying to be... No, that's true. Yeah, that time it could be. That time in the 30s and 40s. The misogynistic process they had in place. Yeah, exactly. So, you know. Patriarchy does that. But Bud said, quote, his worst enemy was himself, always blaming everyone else for his problems. So, great start. Good, 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 Mm -hmm. good. By 19... 19- Sounds like a narcissist. Uh, yeah. 
going to get there. Oh, I bet we are. (laughs) By 1944, at the age of 13, Gilbert dropped out of school and never went back. Uh, This is where he starts his early... Yeah, he's just like, bye. Yeah, that life trajectory, just take a hard left. Yeah, and this is where he starts his early dependency on alcohol. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. Great. Also, again, I don't know. He just has, like, the serial killer starter pack. Awesome start. Going already. He also has three names. He does. (laughs) Yeah. I noticed that right away when I started researching this. Bingo. Because, uh, yeah, it was sent to me, and I was like, huh, three names. Don't love that. <laughs> Do you remember watching The Bachelor and there was John Paul Jones? Yeah. I was always like, serial killer. maybe he's going to turn into a serial killer. <laughs> I love John Paul Jones. So did I, and that's why I was like, no. I think he's just a weirdo with three names. Yeah, I, but love, I love his he's energy. so quirky. Anyway, <laughs> let's get back to this shithole. Yeah, we're not a Bachelor podcast. Okay, so, yeah, he started drinking really heavily shortly after he left school, and it was noted in most of the research that his father had no issues with alcohol at all, and his mother was a non-drinker who, like, strictly kept booze out of the house, so I don't really know where the alcohol thing came from, but it started really early. Maybe it was just, like, not seeing it. It seemed like this thing on a pedestal and it not being around, so it seemed like something fun. Maybe. Could have also just been easy access in other ways. Peer pressure. Beer pressure. (laughs) Uh, So by the time he was 16, Gilbert was considered to be a full-blown alcoholic, and he was also known as the guy who could, like, out-drink everyone, but that's about it. Like, he didn't really have any close, meaningful friendships or romantic relationships. So he was, like, the party friend. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was So, like, you see him at parties, you drink with him, but you don't really know anything about him, and you... Don't have any emotional You're just like, attachment. Oh to yeah, it. that guy. He can drink yeah. so much. He could drink me under he, the table. Yeah. That's okay. Exactly it. Oh, nobody yeah. wants to be that guy. No. I mean, Gilbert. I don't know that he hated it, but oh, grapes. <laughs> so I know that his first arrest was when he was 18 years old in 1950 for theft of an automobile. He got 12 months in jail for that, and his criminal career kind of continues into his 20s with a variety of offenses like theft, drunk driving, um, but his more heinous crimes start in 1961. So this is where he kidnapped and raped a five-year-old indigenous female child. Um, now, I, I think I, oh I don't think God. I mentioned this at the very beginning, but this case through and through is got a lot of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls to it. I was saying to Katie... So a lot of representation needed. Yeah, I was t- I was saying to Katie before we started recording, like, I'm surprised this... I'm surprised that this case hasn't got the same kind of, like, notoriety well, and coverage why. as something like Robert Pickton. But that's why. But a lot of Robert Pickton's victims were indigenous sex workers. But a lot of them were white. Yeah, that's, that's true. Well, okay, so 61, he kidnaps and rapes a five-year-old indigenous uh, female child. He's found by police pretty far from the reserve and with the girl in his car, and he was charged with kidnapping and rape, but a stay of proceedings ended the trial, meaning he was never convicted of anything in regards to that crime. Yeah, just, like, no consequences whatsoever, which is a theme. Le no consequences in your notes. <laughs> Stop reading my notes. I actually, that's like one of the first things I've read, like actually read. I'm just looking in that direction and that one caught my eye. Le no consequences. Le no consequences. Ah, yeah, it's just a, it's a theme. 
So later that year, he halts traffic after that on the Lionsgate Bridge. It's said that he was quite depressed after this. Uh, so he halts traffic on the Lionsgate Bridge in Vancouver, threatening to jump. Oh, poor you. You didn't get away with kidnapping and potentially doing whatever you wanted to that child. Well, and like, you kind of did. Woe so. is you. <laughs> you. You did Also, get like, away don't halt it. traffic for that. Just don't bring a car. Yeah. So Walk on and just... Just ugh. toodles. They end up being able to talk him down. He's arrested for holding up traffic. He goes to court for this arrest, and in court, he gives the judge a Nazi salute and is charged with contempt in court. Good. Yeah. Bullshit. Yeah. So, he spends most of the rest of the time, I mean, you'll see he's kind of all over the map a bit, but most of the time, he's spending his time hanging out in the downtown east side of Vancouver, which... So we're picked and hung out a bit. Yeah, and which at the, the time was known as Skid Row. I think it's more just known as the downtown east side now. I don't... do. Does the term it's, Skid Row, is that really used anymore? Uh, not that I've heard of in a while, so yeah. I hope... That that's changed. I think because, it's yes, just like outdated of, terminology. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of what people used to classify as Skid Row were what they were portraying as these people who didn't want to work, who chose to do drugs, but that's not the case. A lot of those people have mental health issues. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I hope that that wording has changed. But I yeah. do think they just say that, like, the Lower East Side now, or Downtown East Side. I think it's just the Downtown East Side. Yeah. So, I think we've kind of talked a bit about the Downtown East Side in previous episodes. We have. Um... I think we even touched on it in Elisa Lamb. I think it was Tracy Tom. Yeah. In our episode from Pride Month, Tracy Tom, um, we, we discussed the downtown east side a lot more in depth. If you want to go take a listen to that episode, I don't, I just don't have it written out in front of me right now. I think we Clifford Olson's case too. Probably. Yeah. That yeah. would make sense. Um, I think those were the two. But I know, sure. I know we did for sure in Tracy Tom yes. because that occurred in the downtown east side. So if you want to know more about kind of like the demographics um, in the history of the downtown east side of Vancouver, BC, go take a listen to the episode on Tracy Tom. But because of because he spent most of his time here, it made it easy for him to kind of like blend in, I guess. Like it made it mm -hmm. quite easy for him to evade the police and these like crimes that he was doing and blend in. But it also made it easier for him to target women that he felt would attract less attention of the public and the police. So his victim choice ended up being mainly indigenous women with an alcohol dependency. Mainly, he what he would do is offer the promise of free drinks, get the woman incredibly intoxicated, take her back to the hotel room that he had rented with the promise of getting more drinks, and, and then he would basically just get them drunk to the point where he could sexually assault them without their knowledge. So yeah. this is his M.O., basically. Um, in 1963, he lured two women to his car with the promise of drinks. He took them there, and then he ended up raping them and stealing from them. The police arrested Gilbert, charged him with rape and theft, but uh, again, in a pattern that continues, he's acquitted of the rape in court and charged with theft only, and this is because he was found with the woman's purses in his car. Oh. So they could Clever. prove that he had their purses, but it was kind of a he said, she said for the rape, and he got away with it. Ugh. Yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. You don't this... see that it's a hotel room in his name, he has their purses? Oh, Katie, if you're angry now just you friggin wait we have a lot more of this to go great. and it gets infinitely worse great mm -hmm. so much worse so he commits his first murder in 1965 
like I said, it was pretty regular for him to lure women to a hotel after, like, kind of stalking them out at the bar and encouraging them to get a ridiculous level of drunk. Uh, but this night in 1965, he took it a step further than he ever had. The victim's name was Ivy Rose Oswald, and she was a switchboard operator. She accompanied him back to a downtown Vancouver hotel room for a night of binge drinking and was found dead the next morning with a blood alcohol level. I'm just going to refer to that going forward today as BAC, blood alcohol content, of 0.51%, which is considered beyond lethal. God, the second you started that five, I was like, oh. Yeah. Risk of death from alcohol occurs at like 0.35 to 0.40, kind of depending on your tolerance, of course. Um, he was never charged, and her death was considered accidental alcohol overdose. Oh, God. Okay. I yeah. mean, I, I can see why, at the time, with technology and what they could do, mm-hmm. they leaned on the one definite they had, but still. Yeah. So, uh, let's just talk a little bit about BAC and alcohol overdose, though. Let's. Overdose deaths at the time in the downtown east side were, and still are, quite common, Um But usually it's a mixture with other drugs. Mm -hmm. Alcohol overdose causing death alone is incredibly rare because normally you pass out from the effects of the ethanol before it will actually shut down your central nervous system. So it's like pretty hard for you to consume that level of alcohol on your own because you would just like pass out before you could get there. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can all attest to having been a what we feel a normal level of drunk and how tired we are and how heavy we sleep. Mm -hmm. Imagine continuing for two or three more drinks even after that. Yeah. And death from alcohol poisoning, it usually would occur from vomit aspiration, like choking on your own vomit, Um, not from the the ethanol, like actually shutting your body's functions down. So a BAC, like I said, of 0.35%, which is 35 milligrams of ethanol per 100 milliliters of blood is the beginning of the lethal level. Um, And for context, the driving legal limit in Canada is 0.08%. Obviously, many different factors such as body mass intolerance are are considered, sorry, when determining the effects of alcohol overdose, but generally beyond 0.35%, you'd be comatose and more than likely physically unable to continue drinking on your own. So knowing this, having a level of 0.51%, Like, it seems pretty outrageous that somebody would be able to get to that level on their own. However, I do agree since it's, like, the first time that I can see being, like, what? It must be an overdose. Yeah, I agree. And without that kind of pattern starting and not knowing yet, I think it's easy to make a wrong call. Yeah. So this one I will give to them, sure. Sure, yeah. I think there's always ways that you can reasonable doubt yourself out of the first one. Yeah. A few days after Ivy's death, Gilbert changes his last name from Elsie to Jordan, hoping that it would give him a clean slate in society. But as it turns out, changing his name did not make him any less of a piece of shit. No, and there's some form of a paper trail. Yeah, somewhere. Somewhere there is. So someone's going to know you changed your name. He was just like, new name, new me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't work that way, Gilly. Honestly, this guy was so busy that it's... I feel like it's impossible to know everything about what he was doing for the next 10 years or so, but I'm going to give you some examples. Okay. In 1969, he was charged with drunk driving twice in the same day. Oh. (laughs) Two times in the same day. I thought you were going to say, like, week or... No, no. no. In the same day. Great. So, like, okay. okay. (laughs) How? I don't know. 1969 things. Wonderful. Okay. (laughs) 
I literally have written down in my notes, it was the summer of 69 and shit was wildin'. Summer of 69, as Brian Adams has told us, was quite eventful. I think I was delusional at this point in my writing because I just, I couldn't believe that. Well, you used the word wildin'. I did. Yeah. Reading these back sometimes is quite a trip because when you're in that, like, zone... When you're in, like, that research and writing zone, sometimes, like, I'm just writing what comes to mind, and I do proofread them before we get here, but, like, reading them back when I'm in a different, like, mindset is quite funny. Oh, I agree. There's (laughs) definitely, like, little puns that I write in, like, the cliff note version of my Mm, notes, and I'm like, why did I think that was funny? Or I'm like, wow, that was a lot funnier than I really am. Yeah. One or the other. Both. So, 69, he's charged with drunk driving twice in the same day. We're not sure how this is possible. 1971, he's charged with fondling himself in public. These charges are dropped. Also in 71, he meets a woman named Renona, and she was unlike his usual victims, and he ends up falling in love with her. They start a relationship, but of course, he's still prowling the downtown east side and sleeping with sex workers. Kind of unknown if she knew about it, but it's pretty unlikely because in 1973, uh, she decides to marry him. She's like, yeah, absolutely. I will take the Gilbert. Bert. Yeah. I will be the Ernie to your Bert. (laughs) So this whole marriage part, I legit found after I was done all my research and like really threw a wrench in my dick. Like I was, oh man. So yeah, I can't even with this, but. During their first year of being husband and wife, Gilbert was accused of three sexual offenses. One included him inviting local children to their house to watch movies and exposing himself to them. He also sexually... Yeah. He also sexually assaulted a woman whom he had offered a ride home. He was like, oh yeah, you want to ride home? And then he drove her down a long road and was like, want to get drunk? So she senses she's in danger. She tries to get out of the car and he locks the doors and then... Pulls out, like, takes his pants off and sexually assaults her. That escalated quickly. Yes. As does everything with This Bert. guy's honestly a piece. He's a turd. Sounds like On it. the bottom of my shoe. Another car passed by and the girl takes her opportunity to unlock the door and run. And she manages to flag the car down and the driver let her in the car and drove off. What would you do if you were driving down and someone jumped out of a car and was like, help me, help me. Because there's always the risk that it's also another trap. I probably, in the moment, I would just open the car door and let them in and deal with the consequences. I have a weapon on my keychain, so, like, if I have to use it, I will. Fair. I'm just trying to think of, like, what I would do in that moment, and I don't know that my brain would go to, like... Like, it's fight or flight at that moment, right? I think I would just let it happen. I think I... But I think in that case, that's, like, fight. Like, you engage. Yeah, I think I would, too. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of, like, the situation. Because yeah, my rational brain one. is like, hmm, maybe that's not super smart. But in the moment, there's no way that my brain yeah, would, I think be I would like, just be like, oh, oh my God, I have to help Someone this needs person. help. Yeah. 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 The Canadian in us is like, take the risk. Oh, my gosh. Take the risk. So Canadian. Canadian, eh? During another incident in 73, he finished grocery shopping and once again sees a woman waiting for a cab in the freezing cold. He offers her a ride. And he said he had to drop his groceries off at home first and would, and then he would take her home. Why? Were you worried about the frozen stuff? Right. Like, it's winter. I mean, I wouldn't have been taking a Don't ride home from the heat this on creepy the dude anyway. But he was, like, short and stocky and, like, kind of half bald and had, like, thick black glasses. So he was like, George Costanza. Literally. I'm not accepting a ride from him. Okay. 
But she accepted his offer and they go back to his apartment and she helps him bring his groceries in. And then as a thank you. Well, you think because he's giving you a ride, you want to try to be nice. Of course. And you want to get home fast. So you're like, sure, I'll just quickly help you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, As a thank you, he offered her hot buttered rum and she accepted it. He continued feeding her rum until she was so drunk that she lost consciousness. And when she awoke several hours later, she found Gilbert standing in front of her with his pants down. Great. That's exactly what you want to wake up to in a stranger's home. This guy's just like a sexual... Wonderful, Gilbert. I don't know if anyone ever taught you how to host a party, but that's not how. He's a wild... Like, he's sexual predator to the worst degree. Ugh. Okay. He tries to talk her into sleeping with him, and when she said no, he became violent and sexually assaulted her. Um, In the same year, he was also charged with fondling himself in public again and was convicted, though he avoided significant time for these crimes and served about six months. Six months? Yes. That is bullshit. Yeah. So, during the course of his marriage, which of course is also occurring right now, he was allegedly quite abusive to Renona. Renona was admitted to hospital once at the end of 1973 (sighs) and twice in 1974, but she wouldn't tell doctors or nurses what actually happened to her. And They know. Yeah, like, she she just, like, refused to say what happened, and in early 1974, she was in the hospital, and her doctors made a note that her husband was making threatening phone calls to the hospital demanding that she be discharged. Yeah, Yeah, because he wants to be able to control the story. Mm -hmm. This guy's a monster. Um, He's denied, of course. She's able to make her full recovery in the hospital, but this makes him incredibly angry and, like, could... He could have been taking that out on women that he was picking up at bars and on the street, right? Yeah. It's like so, how people attack someone who looks like their spouse or mother that did them wrong. Yeah. It's the same idea. He's letting out his frustration on yeah, his wife, on everybody else. Yeah. So this is, of course, around the exact same time that he's put in jail for six months for those previous assaults. And during this time, Renona was not in the hospital at all. Gilbert was released in late 74, and a month after his release, she's back in the hospital. Oh, you want to talk about a pattern. Mm -hmm. So due to his past behavior at the hospital, of course, he's forbidden from visiting her. He actually, get this, he attempts to dress in a disguise to break her out of the hospital. But he failed. He's apprehended by hospital security because they recognized him right away. And they well, were like, Get yeah, the fuck I'm out of sure here. his disguise wasn't very good. Do you know what it was? No. Oh my god, could you imagine if it was like nowadays where you just like grab whatever Halloween costume you have around? Like, what if he dressed up as like a giant M&M or something and just like broke his wife out? Yeah, he's just an idiot. He is. So, he does that, and then in October of 1975, Renona decides to leave him. She gets the strength. She's like, I am done living like this, and she requested a police escort, sorry, to the airport where she boarded a plane for California, hoping to never see or speak to him again. You'd think this is where it ends for him, but it's not. No. He once again, desperate as hell, calls in a bomb threat to her plane. In, a, in an attempt to keep her in Canada. Oh, my God. Yeah. He's arrested by authorities, and he was charged with endangering the safety of an aircraft in flight, but because the plane never actually took off, he has successfully appealed the charge. That is the stipulation that gets him off the hook? Dude, his appeal record? Like, I showed you how many court how many court documents I had to go through for this case, and almost all of those were appeals. 
<laughs> okay. He, like, this dude knows how to work the system, or at least he found a damn good lawyer that does. Yeah, like, I was gonna say. His appeal is his record defense? is through the roof. Because if I ever go to prison, well, that guy's probably dead. He's now. probably dead now, but, like, it's actually crazy how many times he appeals. Like, oh my gosh, it's wild. So... Crown Counsel attempted to get Gilbert declared a dangerous sex offender upon his release for another crime in 1976, but the request was denied in court. Of course it was. He, right? And, that's, and that doesn't stop, by the Shocker. way. Yeah. He had been jailed this time for what was then known as indecent assault, which is not a crime anymore. But, okay. Um, is yeah. it like indecent exposure? No, there's, like, two different categories for indecent assault. One for indecent assault of a female and one for indecent assault of a male. And ah, yeah. okay. They are, they are repealed and new sexual assault. Uh, yeah, just very, Regulation. very old school. But okay. that that's what it was known as at the time. Declaring him a dangerous sex offender would have put him in jail indefinitely. Um, yeah. But ultimately it was decided that, I'm just going to refer to that as a DSO, uh, it was decided that he did not fit the profile of a DSO, even though a psychologist testified at his trial that he was a diagnosed psychopath. Yeah, he will never mm-hmm. be and like fully manageable or trustworthy out in society is essentially what they're saying. Yes. But yet the courts are still like, well, you know. Yeah, they said like there's no. Welcome to Canada. There's no help for this. So, due to the request by the Crown being denied, Gilbert is allowed to walk free in 1976. So, he's back. Yes. <laughs> I told you this timeline's real tedious and we're just getting into it. I was going to say, not even just tedious, it's fucking frustrating. Yeah. Okay. So, he he's released in 76. He ends up being charged with more sexual crimes in the same year he's released. Of, because, of course. Of course. Yeah. We're not, nobody's shocked here. Two months after his release, he's arrested for indecent exposure in Cold Lake, Alberta. Two months after that, in February of 1977, he drove to an Alberta hospital and left the facility with a female patient. He had abducted the woman from the the mental institution of the hospital. She was 47 years old, but it's said that she had the mental capacity of a child. He, He managed to convince her that he was a doctor and coaxed her into his car. He drove her to a hotel in Edmonton. He raped and beat her and then stole her jewelry. That poor woman and her family that yep. trusted that she was somewhere safe. Yep. And, I mean, she was. That, again, is such an extreme circumstance that you don't ever expect. However, why was a stranger able to even have access to an adult with that learning capacity or mental capacity anyway? Yeah. So, yeah. after three days with her... He forces three her. Three days? Yeah, he keeps her for three days. So for, he's just in this hotel with her for mm-hmm. three days. Mm-hmm. Assaulting her. Oh, my Physically God. and sexually. Okay. Well, and emotionally, mentally. And all of the above, yes. Yeah. Yeah, after three days, um, he forced her back into his car, and then they're just driving, and he pulls over and tries to rape her again on the side of the road. I'm, like, what? Something about being on the open road just got you in the mood? I am unsure why this guy's out to fucking oh, lunch. Oh, my God. Yeah. Police officers passing by, though, noticed the parked car and decided to check it out. Good. And amongst the other horror you can imagine they found, they found empty liquor bottles all over the floor and noticed that the woman that he had with him was covered in bruises. And hopefully had some indication that she was from a hospital setting. 
Yeah, they do figure that out, but of course. Um, I'm sure the second they look up her name, when they ask her her yeah. name, it's all over their system. Yeah, well, and they ask about the bruises, and he says that she fell, but the woman speaks up and says, no, he hit me. Yeah, if you don't have the capacity to read cues like an adult when someone's mm-hmm. trying to get you to shut up or be quiet and you're like a child, you are just going to blurt out the truth. You ready, though? Oh, God. He's charged with kidnapping and sexual intercourse with feeble-minded, amongst other charges. He's denied bail and is held in prison for two years until his trial. Because of her mental capacity, the woman was not allowed to testify, and without her testimony, the case against him was weak, and he ended up being acquitted of all charges except for assault because of her bruises. Yeah. So he's sentenced for this... This is when it's such a piss-off that, like, why are police officers not allowed to testify to the circumstance at the scene back then, right? Because mm-hmm. now we put more, like, validity into, like, a either, like, a social worker or a police officer who may have witnessed something. At least they can take the stand and explain what they saw and be asked questions, whereas back then it was just like, oh, if she can't do it herself, no one can. I think it's ridiculous that she wasn't able to testify. I agree. Even if it's, like... There's a layer of, um, like, understanding Visible. that she has this mental yeah. um, capacity. So, you know, but they keep that into children. Con- so why can't we adapt yeah. the questions to... I don't get it. I think it's ridiculous. Tailored to her co- mental age. Yeah. I don't... I think it's It's stupid. bullshit. But... Yeah. So he's sentenced for this to 26 months, but because he had already served two years at Fort Saskatchewan Institution while awaiting trial, he was freed when the trial was over. He was just able to walk out. So just like time served. Yeah. Beat it. Yep. It was noted that uh, Gilbert showed no signs of remorse and Dr. Bezzaretti, who was the psychologist who examined him during the 1976 trial, diagnosed him as antisocial personality and stated he's, quote, a person whose conduct is maladjusted in terms of social behavior, disregard for the rights of others, which often results in unlawful activities. Yeah. That's a pretty accurate description. Yeah unlawful activities like that might be a bit of an understatement i'll say all right say it what it is this guy's a piece of hot lower east side downtown east side garbage (laughs) it doesn't even matter where he is he's still a hot steaming piece of garbage like out front of the stores you know how on some like corners where the store has been closed for like 10 years there's (laughs) just like needles and piss and garbage and leaves and you know probably bird poop that's him yeah that's true Okay, so during his 26 months in prison, he learned the trade of cutting hair. The last thing I want is this guy anywhere near my neck with a pair of scissors. Yeah. Hey friends, just a quick reminder, if you like hanging out and you want to see more of us, please visit our social media platforms. You can find us at Podcast by Proxy on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you have a business, podcast, or a story that you want featured on our show, we would love to hear it. Email us at podcastbyproxy at gmail.com. Katie and I are so appreciative of every single one of you for being here with us. If you want to support the show even more, please don't forget to hit the follow button wherever you're listening and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Growing the show means we will be able to invest more time and money into bringing you more stories like the one you're hearing right now. To donate to the podcast one time or on a monthly basis, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash podcast by proxy. Now let's get back to it. Hi, everyone. This is Elise from True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Winston the Cat. 
Every other Thursday, Winston and I bring you a new story about a murder, disappearance, or serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown, the Pacific Northwest. This includes Idaho, Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia. For more information, you can find us on Twitter at True Crime Cat Law or on Instagram at True Crime Cat Lawyer. And feel free to send us an email at truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. We hope you'll give us a listen. He's released and he decides to open up a barbershop <laughs> that he calls Slocan Barbershop in the downtown east side of Vancouver. Um, he had received money from inheritance while incarcerated and he invested it in the stock market. So he like I mean, smart. actually had a decent amount of money, like he had enough capital to basically start a new life. Um, so he thought, again, you can't just buy your way out of being a piece of shit. No, money you can't fix your life. You can't just change, decide to change your identity. Oh, I'm a hairdresser now, so I'm not a piece of shit anymore. It doesn't work like not that. Not unless you're going to like leave the country and legitimately start a new life. Yeah. And change who you are. Even then, you still suck. Yeah, and people are you still, still are who, who you, you are. You still are who well, you are inside. I don't care what your name is. Yeah, but so. I mean, at this time, if you were to move to, like, the States and just cut off contact, you probably could start a pretty new life and no one would know. In the 80s? In the 80s? You're super quiet compared to me. I just... was only quiet that time. Okay. I'm not, I'm not saying that you couldn't physically pick up and move and start a new life. I'm saying that moving and changing your name doesn't change that you're Who a piece you of shit yeah. inside of you. Like, you have to do the internal work. That goes for everyone. No, but that's what I mean. I said, like, if you're going to move to a new country and legitimately be a different person, yeah. then good on you. You could probably do it at this day and age. Maybe. At the time. But... Now, with social media and the internet, you'd probably never even get away with it still. Look at, um... You could get away with it if you were less of a piece of shit and made better choices, but it doesn't matter where you go. If you're choosing to make shitty choices, your life's not going to change. But, like, look at, uh, like, Carla Hamalka. She did actually, for all intents and purposes, so we know, lives a very normal life now. But she changed her name and people still point out where she is, when she is, everything. Fair. You're never really going to get away with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I get what you're saying. Yeah. So, at this point as well, he had had started drinking a ton again, like, after his two-year absence. Which, like, was he abstinent in jail? They can make homemade liquor in there. So, like... You can say he was sober in jail all you want, but like Ooch. we we know that they can make homemade liquor and stuff. It's I'm sure Some not good, but line. you know you do what you got to do. So, but at this point, it said he's consuming fifty ounces of vodka a day, <laughs> a day. A That's day. more than how much Coke Zero I drink in that's a day. That's a lot of vodka in a day. That's like two two sixes of vodka. A day. Yeah, that's disgusting. That's insanity. So the shop he opened, it was close to Hastings Street and near the bars that he liked frequenting in the downtown east side. Um, The most notorious bars on the block of Hastings Street at the time were between Columbia and Main Street. These bars catered to high-risk lifestyles, heavy drinking and drug use, and he frequented this block uh, earlier, like I mentioned, to blend in with locals. He was short and stocky, bald head, thick black rim glasses. Like, he looked super harmless compared to what he was surrounded with yeah. so he he was went pretty unnoticed um of course he wasn't harmless yeah, he wasn't a threat to anyone from what everyone could no. see from his appearance so they yeah. kind of just brushed him off yeah he's harmless let's just leave him there <laughs> yeah so he wasn't harmless though nope. and it's guessed that between 1980 and 1987 gilbert murdered seven to ten women in the downtown east side 
During this time, he preyed almost exclusively on alcoholic indigenous sex workers that he felt were easy targets. He preferred to stay away from women who mixed drugs and alcohol as he strictly consumed alcohol and he didn't really care to be around hard drugs. Um, it just, and again, his MO was very catered towards drinkers. Well, he had a high success rate with it, so why change it, right? Like yeah. He, he's, it's been working for him, so to speak. Yeah. And it was easy for him to target these women because it was, I mean, at this point, it's fairly known to him that A, he can get away with murder and crime in general with little consequence. And B, uh, it was assumed by him that the police wouldn't look too heavily into their deaths. Yeah. And he wasn't wrong. So, yeah, clearly this didn't get the notoriety it could because the victim profile didn't fit what the news wanted to cater to at the time. Yeah. So on three separate occasions, he brought um, an indigenous woman back to his barber shop where he coerced them to drink more and more until they passed out. Once they passed out, he would continue to pour alcohol down their throats until they died. These women were found dead. We're going to go into who they were, um, but I just want to like kind of set the stage for what we're getting into. These women were found dead in his barber shop, but the police never charged him and claimed accidental deaths for all three of these incidents. It's the excessive drinking somehow that's getting him out of this. Yeah. Well, and, like, my thing is they were literally found dead in his barbershop. What? Yeah. Also, if you were all drinking, I get that you're a larger person. Your tolerance is maybe higher, potentially, even though you're not a big guy. But why are you so coherent that you're fine Mm -hmm. and they're dead? Yeah. Yeah. And it was assumed in all three cases here and every other case that we're going to talk about that because of their lifestyle, the women overdosed. RCMP retired serious crimes investigator and investigator with the BC Coroner Service, Gary Rogers, says Gilbert Paul Jordan's MO is the most unique and unsuspecting he's ever come across and made it incredibly easy for Gilbert to get away with this for so long. So we can get into what we know about these now. Now, again, we don't have like as much info as I would love to give, but we're going to tell each of these stories as much as we know. Mary Johnson was a 42-year-old Indigenous female found at the Aylmer Hotel on November 30th, 1980 with a BAC of 0.44%. She had called her sister near the end of November and said that she thought someone wanted her dead, and her sister thought she was acting paranoid, but she advised her to call again if she felt she was in danger. She was found a week later, and her death was labeled an accidental alcohol overdose. There was no physical evidence of foul play in the hotel room or on the body. Barbara Paul. No sign. Apparently. Not a bruise. No no physical evidence of foul play in the hotel room or on the body. So no, like, physical strangulation. there's... There's no, potentially no bruises, no, like... But I wonder if maybe there was bruises on her and they just think, well, her lifestyle could indicate that even. Very And then saying when they say physical evidence, are they saying that there was no weapon in the room or no, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. it's such a loophole sometimes. Yeah. And like, did you print it? Probably not. Barbara Paul, she was a 27-year-old Indigenous female found September 11th, 1981 at the Glenard Hotel with a BAC of 0.47%. Her death was listed as unnatural and accidental due to alcohol poisoning. Barbara was a known drinker who lived a high-risk lifestyle and was a sex worker. Mary Johns was a 29-year-old female found July 30th, 1982 at Slocan Barbershop with the BAC of 0.76%. Oh my god. So this is the first victim I was talking about earlier that was found at the barbershop. 
Okay. She was an indigenous woman who recently fled the Yukon Territory after the death of her infant son. Mary had followed Gilbert back to his barber shop with the promise of a night of drinking, um, obviously the same way he lured everyone else. The next morning, he calls his lawyer in a panic, stating that he had been drinking with a friend the night before, and it seemed she drank too much and was dead. His lawyer basically says, like, okay. If Again? It's an a- No, he's like, if it's an accident, like, call the police and let them know. Because at this point, he's not linked to any of the yeah, other ones, right? Yeah, everything's getting wiped out or yeah, acquitted or charges are dropped yeah like, yeah it's bullshit yeah so he's like okay well call the police then and, and let them know so he hangs up the phone knowing full fucking well her death wasn't an accident um her bac being 0.76 percent was high enough to kill her twice yeah so but authorities didn't even check his criminal record when he reported her death and it was ruled uh an accidental death like all the others mm-hmm. i have nothing to say well yeah this is uh i really just wanted to I guess highlight every single one of these so that we understand how particular of a victim profile this was and how overlooked they got. Yeah. And then also wonder like how the hell does nobody know more about this? It's because of exactly what you just said. It's wild. Patricia Thomas, she was a 40-year-old indigenous female found December 15th, 1984. Her body was found a second female to be found at Slocan Barbershop with a BAC of 0.51%. She had a young daughter named Joanne, and she was known to have issues with alcohol. Um, Her death was ultimately ruled accidental. Patricia met Gilbert and went back to his barbershop for a night of drinking. After getting her drunk, he continued to coax her to drink more and more alcohol, and whenever she passed out, he would revive her and force her to drink more. In the morning, he rolled over on the mattress he kept at the shop, and Patricia was lying dead next to him. So, in the same way that he escaped... Well, when you start and stop someone's body over and over again, I don't know what you expect. Yeah. In the same way he escaped punishment with Mary John, he called his lawyer, claiming he had no idea how she passed away, and then called the police and told them the same. Her death is ruled accidental due to alcohol poisoning. Maybe you should quit drinking if women keep showing up around you... So I guess my thing at this point is, like, we're going on the second or third, second time that he's called the police and reported. But yeah, called his lawyer first. Yeah, but it's just like, yeah, accidental. Alcohol poisoning. Yeah, they're not like, oh, another one? And again, it's because death by alcohol, like, murder by alcohol is such a foreign concept to them at this point. He's the first person that's ever done this. Like, kill, like, used alcohol as a murder weapon, basically. Which is shocking. Yeah. Um, and so it just, it was so unprecedented that they didn't even think to to look for it. And, and again, I'm not, I don't think I need to stress that the victim profile um, had a lot to do with this. And, and we're going to see that a little bit more here, so. Yeah, it's not someone that they want to be putting the time or energy into looking for or well, reporting on. and, like confirmation bias so i had something written about confirmation bias in here we see what we want to see or we want to believe they were led to that and it's it's really it's really hard for our brains because they're they're function they function in such a way that like when we see something our brains are wired to like connect what we already know or what we already think to come to a conclusion quicker and it's really hard for us to like unwire that and strip down a scene and like reevaluate exactly Uh, it doesn't mean you're intentionally being biased it's just like literally the way our brains work so in this case like they have a high-risk lifestyle and it's kind of that mentality of like well 
it was bound to happen yeah, eventually. They asked for it, kind of thing. Sort of. Like, you know, what yeah. did, you know, it's always a risk. So it wasn't taken well, seriously. What did they expect? Yeah. Okay, so Patricia Andrew found June 28th, 1985. Uh, this is the third female found at the barbershop. She was a 45-year-old indigenous woman with a known alcohol problem. She was found at Slocan Barbershop with a BAC of 0.79%. Um, after Gilbert, you guessed it, called the police in the morning and alerted them of her passing. 0.79% uh, should have raised a red flag, in my opinion, but what do, yes. I, what do I know? This is the third woman found dead at the barbershop reported by the same guy, and her death is ruled unnatural and accidental. When someone's BAC is literally almost 10 times the legal limit mm -hmm. you might want to look into it because mm -hmm. like how was someone able to continue drinking that long that's a great question yeah. yeah i mean it's been my question all along i was just waiting to see if you naturally answered it by the like you know fourth or fifth woman yeah but you hadn't so i'm just gonna throw it out there mm -hmm. yeah yeah okay so, September 25th, 1986, Velma Gibbons, a 38-year-old Indigenous woman living at the Balmoral Hotel, was found dead in one of the hotel rooms completely naked from the waist down. Velma was living at the, uh, the hotel due to the fact that her and her husband separated because of her drinking, and on the morning of September 24th, Velma had made a call to her estranged hus husband. I'm having an issue with talking again today. <laughs> made a call to her husband to tell him that she was serious about her sobriety and asked if he could pick her up the next day as it was their son's birthday um she seemed sober level-headed on the phone she seemed like she was taking her sobriety seriously so her um the husband granted her request and this never happened of course she met gilbert that night and was found dead the next morning velma's established alcoholism and lack of evidence meant that her death was also ruled accidental due to acute alcohol poisoning for fuck's sake. I don't even know what victim number we're at anymore. If anyone's yeah. keeping count, let me know. November 19th, 1986, 33-year-old Veronica, um, she went by Vera Harry, was found at Clifton Hotel with a BAC of 0.49%. Uh, sorry. He found uh, Veronica, the two go on their usual drinking bender for the night. Not their usual drinking bender, sorry. His usual drinking bender for <laughs> yeah. the night. He invites Veronica back to the Clifton Hotel, where I think we can all guess what happens. He, of course, coaxes her to drink a dangerous amount and forces alcohol down her throat until she dies. Once again, he places a call to his lawyer in the morning, claiming to have no clue what happened. He tells the police the same story, and the police believe that she died of alcohol in her sleep while Gilbert, Gilbert was also asleep, and her death is ruled unnatural and accidental due to alcohol poisoning. Do we know if these hotels are in, like, far enough apart from one another that maybe they're different to police departments? I don't think so. They're okay. all on the downtown east side. Okay. Maybe I don't think so. Maybe it could be, like, Delta, no. North Vancouver. They're definitely in the same jurisdiction okay. and, like, the same three blocks. I was just trying to no, find I know. how this is happening. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's, again, it's just an assumption based on their lifestyle. And also the fact that nobody had ever been found killing women with alcohol or killing anybody with alcohol intentionally um but oh, because you think like what we said you'd pass out mm -hmm. you'd choke you'd vomit something else would happen before someone would die so now they're going like oh crap is this this new alcohol in the city like they probably are not even putting together that it's this person yet they probably think there's something wrong with the alcohol in the area well and at this point like they're kind of far enough apart we have Kind of one or two a year. 
um, in this portion of the timeline. Again, They're not it's like it's a it's a lot. It's the same but person I know. calling them all. It's in. insane. It's literally insane for sure. Yeah. 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 It's insane. This was like some kind of cult, and it was a different person associated to each one. I could see how they didn't make a connection, but I don't know how they couldn't. In this a case. booze murder cult. I don't want that to exist. Oops. Shouldn't have put it out there. <laughs> okay. That's not funny. I giggle when I'm uncomfortable. Yeah, we all do. That's why we're here. Yeah, so with the Veronica, though, after seeing her in her casket, her friends and family thought it was kind of suspicious that there were cuts and bruises on her face. But they were reminded of her hard partying ways and told that drinking like that in an area like that, she was bound to get hurt. No. Right? Cuts and bruises on your face don't need to happen. Yeah. But this, I mean, this was his goal, to select vulnerable, marginalized women who the police were less likely to investigate due to their race and their social status and lifestyle. That's, that's it. So sad. Yeah. It's not until the police find his next victim, Vanessa Buckner, dead at the Niagara Hotel that they really kind of start to take this seriously and start to take an interest in Gilbert. We oh, do, really? We do finally get there. Oh. Yeah. In some reports... Praise Jesus, hallelujah. <laughs> in some reports, Vanessa's listed as Caucasian, and in the... Oh, that's why it got attention all of a sudden. Yeah, in the court documents, though, she's listed as mixed race. Yeah, that's why this got attention. That's fucking yeah. bullshit. No wonder this one's where it started to get some goddamn traction. Yeah, so uh, on mad. any account, she's whiter than his other victims. If she appears Caucasian, too. Yeah. Like you said, mm-hmm. those biases. Yeah. If you don't have to stop and think, oh, this person is not the same skin color as me, and I have to treat them the same as someone who is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's... Yeah. Ugh. So of course the 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 yeah, you're you're not going to be very happy by the end of this. According to Vanessa's family, there are other reasons why she stuck out a little bit more. She wasn't a known heavy drinker. She her vice was like hard drugs. Okay. So it was like, you know, kind of weird that so maybe he promised her drugs but then fed her alcohol saying like yeah, I'm not you know, really... maybe like, oh, well, let's have some drinks while we wait for so-and-so to get here with the drugs kind of thing. I don't know, like, but her death, her BAC was 11 times the legal limit when she was found, found and, like, this set off alarm bells for her family. So she was at 0.88%? I think it was actually 0.91. Yeah, 0.91%, which is, like, massively more, like, he gave this girl way more... Either he gave her Does way he more than the like other an victims. IV drip of alcohol. Uh, no, he like revive. They pass out. He revives them. He forces alcohol down their throats while they're unconscious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like we said, let's be honest. The police took a greater interest as well because the victim was white or whiter. Um, but family members did really pressure police in this case, saying that foul play had to involve be involved. Like it just didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Vanessa was 27 years old. Um, she was a sex worker from what we know. She did have a drug problem, but as I mentioned, she wasn't a known drinker according to her family. According to court documents, Vanessa recently lost custody of her newborn baby who had been born with a drug dependency, which had caused her, of course, to be really depressed and kind of led her to... Maybe that's why she went to drink, just because it was something Being in to this do. area. Yeah. Yep. It's speculated, of course, that Gilbert suspected that she was just like all his other victims and he wouldn't get caught. 
He took her to the Niagara Hotel on the night of October 11th, 1987, where he got her to drink bottles after bottles of vodka with him. And he is seen by witnesses leaving the room several times to, like, go buy more vodka and bring it back to the room. So, yeah, and that's where you guessed it. On the morning of October 12th, 1987, he places the call to police, letting them know of the dead body in the hotel room. She's found naked on the floor of the hotel. After examining her, it was determined that her BAC, like I said, was 0.91%. And at this point, they figure, like, okay, maybe she didn't get to that level on her own. No, it's just maybe, someone... maybe now is saying like she wasn't a heavy drinker and she got to that level thank you for finally looking into it i don't know what took you so long yeah like you said it's ridiculous to think that somebody would be able to get to 0.91 percent on their own Mm -hmm. it's like i'm gonna go out on a whim and say that it's scientifically like not possible fair i would (laughs) tend to i'm not a scientist but i feel like I think that's a safe bet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So police trace the source because he placed an anonymous call to the police about this one from his hotel. He like goes back to his own hotel and then places an anonymous call to the police saying that there's a dead body at the Niagara Hotel. And How anonymous is it if it's from your own hotel? Yeah, correct. They, they trace it and they trace it back to a room at the Marble Arch Hotel, which was occupied by Gilbert. That was like his main hotel room. And then he would just like get all these other rooms to bring girls back to. And then, but like he had home base. How awkward would that be if you're like, hold on. Oh, this isn't the right key. Let me try another one. And you just have to go through like all four keys. I don't think he cared. Uh, Gilbert's immediately questioned by police, but due to the lack of evidence at the time, they were unable to charge him. Police originally labeled the death as an accidental overdose due to booze. Vanessa's parents are livid. Uh, They acknowledge that she was a sex worker and she had a drug problem, but she had never been a drinker. They said that the man who made the call had to be responsible for her death. It was just way too out of character. Personally, I feel here like he's kind of starting to get sloppy and desperate because, like, previously... He had a very strict victim profile, um, and it seems like his crimes are kind of starting to get a little bit closer together and a little bit sloppier. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. So he's escalating. He's put under surveillance by police. However, while waiting for the approval for surveillance, he attacked another woman. November 9th, 1987, police find the body of 53-year-old Edna Shade. Edna was an indigenous woman, like many of Gilbert's victims, how I... However, unlike the rest of his victims, she was not really known to have any vices. She was well-known and loved in her community. She actually worked helping sex workers from the downtown east side return to school. She lived in a single room at the Beacon Hotel where her body was found, and she was found naked with a BAC of 0.12%. There was no witness uh, that saw Gilbert enter the room, nor did he call this one in. But because of their interest in him now, police suspected that he was probably responsible for this woman's death as well. They dusted the the scene for prints, and they did find his. But apparently the existence of prints were not enough to charge him. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Like, I don't understand how. I mean, I know that there was some time where fingerprints weren't, like, admissible in court. So maybe maybe that's why. why. I just was really confused about that. I was like, yeah, there's just not enough evidence to charge him. Like, but Bullshit. What? What do you mean? 
mean? Okay. So you find multiple women in his hotel rooms, his businesses, their possessions in your car, and you have a woman literally pipe up and go, no, 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 he was beating me. Mm-hmm. And you still don't feel like you have enough? Nope. But they finally get their surveillance approval and police start monitoring Gilbert's every move. Um, they watch him strike up conversations with indigenous women on the streets, buying them drinks and inviting them back to hotel rooms. Like he very specifically was searching out his specific victim profile. Yeah, he was on the prowl. Yeah. November 20th, 1987, Gilbert meets 55-year-old Rosemary Wilson. The two drink together for the evening, and eventually he brought Rosemary up to his room at the Balmoral Hotel in the downtown east side. This time, however... Oh, I do know that hotel. Do you? Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's a good chance a lot of these hotels either don't exist anymore or were renamed. You know, I'm pretty sure the Balmoral is just what it is still. Yeah. It might not be open anymore, but it still it's has still there. the name outside of it and everything. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to Google it. So this time police were actually following them and they positioned themselves directly in front of the hotel room door with audio and recording equipment. Rosemary was already super intoxicated, but the police catch him on recording on like the audio recording saying quotes like, down the hatch, baby, 50 bucks if you can take it. Show me what a real woman is. Ew. Over and over and over. Constantly. Why? I don't know. Well, to get them drunk. I do know. To continuously get them drunker and drunker and drunker so that he could sleep with them. So, yeah, he's, like, literally offering them money to drink more. Uh, yeah. Show he's me what a like, real yeah, woman is made of, he's honey. He's making it like a drinking contest. It's almost like the reverse psychology. Mm-hmm. Like, I bet you can't drink that much. Yep. And they're like, fuck you, I can't. Like, already drunk. Yep. Mm-hmm. <gasps> but there's nothing that the police can do while she's still conscious and talking. Like, that's not a crime. Being creepy isn't a crime. No, and it should be. It should be. <laughs> there should be a way to qualify it. It's a crime in my head, but and it's not a legal crime. As of 2017, the Balmoral Hotel was in imminent danger of collapsing and it's permanently closed, evacuated. Really Haunted by Gilbert. Like it's abandoned, obviously, and not. Yeah, it's yeah. just there's a lot of garbage and stuff that was left behind all sure. over it. So, yeah, I mean, he's being creepy, but again, they can't do anything while she's still conscious um, and yeah. verbal. They had strict orders not to intervene unless she was in danger. The room eventually goes quiet, and the police figure that the two had gone to sleep, so they packed up their audio equipment and start leaving. Just as they're walking away, they hear a super loud piercing scream. So at this point, the police intervene, and Rosemary is brought to the hospital. (laughs) Okay, good. Yeah. So I'm going to use air quotes when I say the next part. Over the next week, the police uh, air quote save three more women could have saved a lot more women if you had taken this seriously at the beginning yeah and i I mean allowing them to get to a point where they're basically like just about dead before you intervene and take them to the hospital like is that saving them or just really traumatizing them i don't i don't know if it is but i'm just gonna use the word save in hella air quotes so i mean if the women are alive they saved them but was it necessary to wait that long? No. I don't know that it was. No. Like, that's was not, not keeping your... I don't know. Anyway, that's that's just my opinion, and we're not going to go there. 
So the victims are Verna Chartrand on November 21st, 1987 at the Pacific Hotel. She was brought to the hospital with a BAC of 0.52%. Sheila Joe was a victim of Gilbert's on November 25th, 1987 at the Rainbow Hotel. Her BAC is unknown. The final survivor was Mabel Olson on November 26, 1987. I know, I love that name. She was at the Pacific Hotel, BAC Unknown. The police walked in on Gilbert with Mabel, and he was gripping her by the neck, forcing her mouth open, and pouring vodka down her throat in an attempt to murder her. They, like, literally had her by right. the throat, opening her throat hole and, like, pouring Yeah, probably, like, six. holding the back of her jaw and her yep. throat. and yeah. yeah. Oh, God. So the victim's taken to the hospital, and it's at this point that Gilbert is finally arrested, but only for the murder of Vanessa Buckner. What? Yes. Why? They apparently think that they only have enough to charge him and get a conviction for the murder of the white girl. Of course. Yeah. <coughs> Literally same. So as suspected, uh, Gilbert doesn't really seem too phased by his arrest. Like, he's gotten away with so much at this point. It seems like he has a lawyer on speed dial who is ready to appeal anything and everything for him. Yep. I mean, he's gotten away with murder basically for 20 years. Why would he be phased? Yeah, why would he think any different? He's His confidence in this process is so high at this point. Yeah, and also I'm pretty sure he just doesn't have feelings. So the police well, decide that he's probably the, the kind of guy that would brag about his crimes to a cellmate, so they plant an undercover. However, he was not. He was pretty smart. He never incriminated himself. He did make kind of like a passing comment kind of he kind of made a snarky comment the the undercover was trying to get him to to admit to it of course and said something along the lines of um oh i heard that they i heard i overheard them saying they booked a guy for seven to ten murders that must be you hey and gilbert kind of smirked and said well i didn't realize it was that many so like not incriminating himself but just being a asshole yeah that's just like a weird kind of backhand just a dick comment. move it's just he yeah. like he's just like he knew and he was just, just being a dick with people mm-hmm. yeah uh, yeah he basically said he didn't know why he was there because he already signed a statement regarding <laughs> vanessa's death he was like oh i don't know i already signed a statement her death was an accident like i don't know what i'm doing here yeah i answered everything you need to know yeah he sticks to basically the whole time like yeah i was there but i didn't kill them I drank with them. Are? I bought them liquor. I oh I got drunk God. with them, but wasn't me. He's basically shaggy. Wasn't me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So he does end up being charged with first degree murder, though, and held without bail. I wonder if people know that at some point in almost every case, I like sing something stupid, and then nine times out of ten, it gets edited out. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't, though. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> So, Gilbert's murder trial begins in October of 1988. However, Crown Counsel was worried that they didn't have enough evidence to get a first-degree murder conviction. Come on, Crown Counsel, do better. How? Like, literally how? But I guess because of the booze. Honestly, I'm acting shocked because I know what happened. Only one of them was white. I think still, at this point, it's very much, like, taboo or, like, unheard of that somebody could murder somebody with alcohol. Like, it's still, like, those people... Well, you know what I it mean? It definitely like it's, is a hard one to put out there and then have people be like, well, what is the safe 
area to drink with someone then. And you have to be able to prove intent in first degree murder. So you have yeah. to you have to be able to prove that he intended to kill them. And that you, there's like a hard argument for the amount that he was drinking. Why is Joe hanging up upside down in his cage? I don't know. Right now? I was watching him a minute ago and he was like Joe tug of war with that napkin that's in his <laughs> toy. He really likes to rip apart napkins, so I put a piece of paper towel in with one of his toys for him. Joe is being silly right now, guys. Yeah. I think he's just trying to be like, over also, here, guys. comment on this episode post on Instagram, at Podcast by Proxy, if you love our new ending with Joe. Yeah, I've had a few people say, normally I don't listen to, like, outros, but I heard yours the other day and I realized Joe was in it. Like, <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah, do you love him? Do you hate him? We yeah, don't, don't really care. I was going to say, yeah, I don't care if you hate him. He's staying. I might get, I'm going to get somebody to do, like, artwork with him and us. And we Joseph. Can, we can get a sticker made. Yeah, what Joe. do we think about, like, Joe sitting on a microphone? I'm obsessed with Holding it. a knife. Like I'm obsessed the crow with everything, Joe. Vancouver. I wish I could have a bird, because I'd take him. Joseph. I probably could have a bird. You know what? He's real loud. You probably couldn't. Also, we had an owl the other night the photo of your mom standing underneath it is like <laughs> the single up. funniest thing i've ever seen i literally told her there's an owl in there and she goes oh my god take my picture with it i'm going outside to help it and then she's out there she goes take my picture do you watch brooklyn 99 no oh okay well somebody listening to this might watch brooklyn 99 and it just reminds me well it doesn't remind me it is <laughs> the scene when he's at like the tower where Die Hard was filmed. Okay. And Jake, who's like one of the main character. Andy Samberg. Andy Samberg. Okay. It's like going around the entire because his favorite movie is Die Hard. It's like yeah. what made him want to be a police boy. officer. He's just running around everywhere. It's like the door. He's like, take my picture with it. It's really funny. So anyway, that's what that's what I think of. I guess I'll just loop back because we got a little bit off topic. Crown Council was worried they didn't have enough evidence to get a first-degree murder conviction. So at this point, the charges are dropped from first-degree murder all the way down to manslaughter. Yeah, of course they are. Yeah. Seems like the practical choice. <sighs> He remains calm throughout his entire trial. He shows absolutely no remorse. He admitted to providing uh, Vanessa with alcohol, but took no responsibility for her death. And, I mean, not shocking. He remains that way to, to death, basically, that he didn't do it. This case relied heavily on similar fact evidence. So I'm going to get into this a little bit because last episode we kind of talked about it because it wasn't allowed in Jennifer Cussworth's murder trial. Uh But um, we didn't get into it too much. So I wrote a little bit about what, like, why and what that actually means. So similar fact evidence. Generally speaking, SFE... We'll abbreviate it to that of general propensity, disposition, or bad character that only goes to prove the accused is the, quote, type of person to commit the offense is always inadmissible. In a similar context, it's inadmissible uh, when tendered to establish bad character as circumstantial proof of the accused uh, conduct. So basically when it's just used as like a supporting argument that the person is the type of person that would commit that offense, it can't be used. Fair. Yeah. I mean, I'm, like, the type of person that would do a lot of questionable things, but I don't want to be deemed on the things I may or may not do. Yeah. Another term for this uh, is bad character evidence, and it's most often not allowed to be used in trial. The reason being is that there's a general presumption in criminal law that a person tried in a criminal court must only answer to evidence limited to matters relating to the transaction which forms the subject of the indictment. English... They can only be convicted of evidence re- that relates to the thing that they're there for. Fair. It has to support 
what the being the charges are for. Yeah. So the use of SFV can be allowed by the trial judge as long as there is sufficient probative value to it um, and that it wouldn't bring too much prejudice, basically. In this case, the SFE was allowed. Okay. So this case relied really heavily on that similar fact evidence from the other cases. Uh, his trial was by judge alone, and on October 21st, 1988, Justice Boak found Gilbert Paul Jordan guilty of manslaughter and the death of Vanessa Buckner. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Crazy. You know that's not it, though. You know that we're not done. Because why? he obviously appealed. He literally appealed the day that he got convicted. Like, the appeal went through the day he was why convicted of manslaughter. Why do we prioritize these people's paperwork, even, yet... People are struggling to get approved for, like, welfare because they can't feed their kids and mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. He, it was the, the Can appeal, we deprioritize these shitbags' appeals? It was filed the same fucking day. The reason for appeal was on six grounds, but major ones, there's, like, three or four that related to the admission of the similar fact evidence. Um, this part's obviously super legal jargony, so I'm not really going to go into it too much, but I did link... I love it when you speak legal (laughs) jargon to me. Talking dirty to me. Mm. I linked the trial transcripts that I used in the show notes for anyone who wants to read them, but yeah, there was like three or four that were related to the admission of the SFE, and I think, obviously, like, when you're appealing, you're appealing based on, like, anything that you can find, and because similar fact evidence is so... It's already on the cusp of being it's so eligible. Rare. Yeah, it's so rare that it's, it's used. easy to say. It's an easy one to use. That's rarely ever used. Why'd you let it be used in mine? Yeah, and I'm sure there's a lot of case law that you can oh, back yeah. that up with, right? So the appeal was heard by three judges, of course. Um, that's how appeals work in Canada. And on November 26, 1991, a judgment was made. It was decided that sentencing would be reduced from 15 years to nine years on the basis that... The trial judge relied too heavily on the similar fact evidence as well as they relied too heavily on the psyche, uh, the psychiatrist testimony from the 1976 trial. Apparently, those two things they said were relied too heavily on, so they dropped. That's what they used. So they relied on too heavily on the factual information that was used to support the conviction? Yeah, but I think it's just the fact that... Um, the reason the maximum sentence was given was because of similar fact evidence and this testimony from 1976, which are both not the case at hand. Fair. So okay. they're saying, like, you relied way too heavily on this to to impose a maximum sentence. Okay, and I get that it's fair because we do say this is the kind of time where we say, oh, they weren't taking his previous offenses into account and they should have. Mm-hmm. This is just the opposite where we're seeing, okay, they're finally taking them into account. Yeah. There shouldn't be room for appeal. Yeah, but they're basically saying they used it too heavily to, to justify a maximum sentence, whereas anybody else with this kind of... Um, like one manslaughter charge in this case would have been given six to nine years. Oh, okay, yeah, that's a big difference. So, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, so they drop it to nine years based on that. Gilbert Paul Jordan served six years in prison for the manslaughter of Vanessa Buckner. And, yeah. um, you know, justice right. was not served for a single years. one of those Indigenous women not who lost all. their lives. Not a day. Not a day of justice was served for that. So that's. disgusting and super unfortunate and the reason why we're here today like i've never been so angry to think that i'm so well supported 
Mm -hmm. And that's such bullshit. Like, the fact that I know that if I call police or I need to engage our legal justice system to support me in some way, Mm -hmm. I am likely going to get better help than somebody else. Yeah. It's bullshit. Well, and the fact that that I could find, like, three podcast episodes in existence on this case. Mm Mm-hmm. Why? it's one of the ones that you said just before this that you could have put the most time into. Absolutely. I probably... Yeah. 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 Anyway. So he's released in 1994. He's placed on probation with restrictions. One of those restrictions being that he cannot leave Vancouver Island. It's like, why? Why are you punishing us? Yeah, we don't want him. I don't fucking want him. Um, As well as he was uh, not to be in the company of any female or females in any other place where alcohol is being consumed by you or them and not to attend any licensed establishment in the, quote, red zone. There was like a map. That he had, there was like a red zone of areas. I'm assuming it's like hotels in the downtown yeah, of like Victoria and... that he couldn't go. Yeah, yeah. He attempted changing his name to Paul Pierce in the year 2000. You're not cool enough for that name, buddy. Yeah, and at the time, also, apparently in 2000, fingerprinting wasn't necessary yet for a name change. Yeah. So he was like gonna do that, but then the law changed, so he never like the application never went through because there was like now I have to be fingerprinted, and so I don't want to do not it. gonna do that because <laughs> I'll get. Well, I don't want to tell. At the end of 2000, he was arrested twice for breaching probation because he was found drinking and in the presence of a woman while in the possession of alcohol, which is two of his main probation conditions. One of these times was with an indigenous woman in a hotel in Port Renfrew. He was found guilty and thrown back in jail for 15 months, released on February 6, 2002. He was given three years of probation with conditions. He literally appealed the probation period and asked for it to be reduced by half and was denied. I cannot make this up. This guy is literally the spokesperson that created, like, there's no harm in asking. Correct. This guy. What's the worst they could say? No. One of his, yes, I was just going to say one of his main slogans in life has got to be the worst they can say is no. Oh, geez, people. Yeah, it's insane. I hate that because I use that saying a lot. Now I'm going to think of this D-bag. Are you ready for this? Yeah, So he's he's released on February 6, 2002, and 11 days later, on February 11, 2002, he is arrested again for breaching... Sorry, how many days? Five days? No, 11. Oh, sorry. Okay, I think I said five. Yeah, no. So he's released on February 6, 2002, and on February 11, 2002, he's arrested for a breach of probation again, and he's uh, he's apprehended by a police officer at a hotel drinking with a woman. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's found guilty of the count for shall abstain absolutely from the consumption of alcoholic beverage. Um... <laughs> And he was found not guilty for the count of not to be in the company of, of any female person or persons in any place where alcohol is being consumed by that person or persons. So he's found guilty of consuming the alcohol, but they find him not guilty of being with a woman there doing it, even though there is an officer who caught him. Yeah, and the fact that, well, he was there and she was there. Like, Correct. It's not a hard one to argue. Yeah. So he, of course, he can, he appeals this, though, too. Of course he does. Yeah, he appeals this. Uh, it's denied. He spends some more time in prison. August of 2004, five days after being released with strict orders once again not to leave Vancouver Island. You see where the tedious timeline yeah. is happening, right? Yeah. He Because he can't go three also, days. why are you ever letting this guy out? Yeah, not Even sure. Even just the frequency that you're picking him up, does it not seem like a 
toll on just like the community's police force. One, and if we remember from like what now seems like eons ago, if we had just declared him a dangerous sex offender back in the day, none of this would be happening. Like this is so much All time and money on our system. Too. That too. Yeah. All these people would have been alive. There's yes. so many factors to this that are frustrating. Yeah. It's insane. From emotional to logical to everything. It's it's fucked up. Yeah. So August 2004, five days after he's released with strict orders once again not to leave Vancouver Island, he's caught boarding a plane to Calgary and a Canada-wide warrant is issued. Okay. At the time, he's 72 years old. The dude <laughs> will not quit. He won't quit. Yeah, most 72-year-olds aren't even, like, mobile anymore. He, okay, spoiler alert, one of his appeals in the future here, he literally appeals on his time in prison because of his age and, like, health. So he pulled a Cosby? we don't give a shit. You can die a decrepit old man in there. Yeah, he literally pulled a Cosby and was like, can you let me out because I'm old and I couldn't do anything and my health is deteriorating so I shouldn't be in here? We definitely can't do that for you. No. No, no, no. no. We shouldn't have done it for Cosby either, but you know, that's a different story. That's a story for another, that's a song for another time. So, he's arrested in Winnipeg, Manitoba on August 11th, 2004 for violating his probation order once again for an indictment at the York Hotel in Swift Current, Saskatchewan on August 9th, 2004. He was identified as being there with Barb... Quite the Canada Globetrotter here as well. <laughs> yeah. Identified as being with Barb Buckley, who was a long-term resident of the hotel... The hotel... With a known drinking problem. Her friend, uh, Kathy Waddington, who is also a hotel employee, um, found her in really bad condition. She took her to the hospital and Kathy identified Gilbert Paul Jordan as being there. He is acquitted of these charges in 2005. Basically, the acquittal is because the only evidence that they actually had of them being at that hotel was a brief eyewitness. And they used... Basically, case law to say that eyewitness testimony is not reliable, reliable and and there's a ton of factors like the amount of time that the the witness would have been able to spend um, looking at the suspect um, if they were shown a photo of him like immediately after within a couple days and they identified it, but kind of like none of that happened. It was just like the only way she would have seen him was in passing really quickly. So it was kind of like it was just not enough. February 5th, 2005, he's acquitted. The Saanich Police Department issued an alert warning oh, the public. that was my police department. Yeah, that's where that's Katie... our police department. That's where we used to live. Point. That's where Katie and I used to live when we first met. Um, oh. But yeah, Saanich PD issues an alert warning the public to be cautious of Gilbert Paul Jordan, who had recently been released back into the community. The description read as follows. Gilbert Paul Jordan, age 73, 5'9", or 175 centimeters, 174 pounds, or 74 kilograms, partially bald, gray hair, a gray goatee, blue eyes, and he wears thick black glasses. It was noted that he currently lives in the Victoria area with no fixed address. He has a significant criminal record, including manslaughter, indecent assault of a female, and that he uses alcohol to lure his victims. It also noted that his target group is adult females. Not sure why I didn't emphasize target group is adult indigenous females. Like, I honestly think that should have been there, but whatever. At least they issued a warning. And, I mean, I don't think that they necessarily emphasized just enough, like, yeah, he uses, like, alcohol to coerce them as a bribe. Yeah. But I think they also should have stressed 
you know, if you're drinking at a bar and you see someone and they just seem to be extra pushy about getting drinks into you, mm-hmm. this guy's been known to try to disguise himself before, so just be hyper vigilant. Yeah. He was also, of course, subject to his usual court orders that he refuses to follow, which is abstain absolutely from the consumption of alcohol, not to be in the company of any female person or persons in any place where alcohol is either consumed or possessed by that person or persons. He just, like, can't follow so, these yeah, rules. So, yeah, you can't be in, like, a restaurant, bar, anything like that. Yeah, he just can't do it. But, um, honestly, there's not really much after that when he's released in 2005. I don't, his health must have been pretty bad by then because on July 7th, 2006 in Victoria, B.C., he dies of liver cirrhosis at the age of 74 years old. I'm annoyed that he died out of prison. Yeah. Like, you got... He died a free man. You got the dignity to die as a free person, and that's just bullshit after what you took from so many people. Yeah. So, that is the case of... I don't think I ever mentioned it during the episode, but he is known as the Boozing Barber. That was, like, his name. I just don't really have any interest in giving Again, them cool names. they get such catchy, I'm not quippy, here for like, it. illiterate names and illiterate. But that's Gilbert Paul Jordan, the boozing barber. We can learn a lot about this, I think, and how investigations are handled and yeah. how the death into indigenous women and women of color in general is handled compared to white or whiter looking females i mean he was literally convicted of one of those murders mm-hmm. and it, he he was it was manslaughter not I murder stand but like by it what the one the one that was white yeah uh so i think that just speaks volumes i don't even think we need to say much more i am i don't want to say enjoying but I like the emphasis we've been putting lately on missing, murdered, indigenous women and girls cases. Yeah. Talking about how investigations are handled and, like, bringing a bit more awareness to this. So I think that's something that I'm going to keep doing going forward. Yeah. No, I agree. So if there's a case that anybody knows about that you think needs more attention, even if I can't find a ton, because a lot of the times these cases, when they're individual, they, they don't... There's just not enough on them because yeah. of of that, and so I can do multiples in one. Like I, I'm and not opposed to doing like that. Canadian cases in general, mm-hmm. they're not nearly as covered as American cases. Yeah. Um. And again, we do have a case suggestion link. So if you head over to our Instagram and go to the link tree, mm-hmm. it gets you straight to that document. Otherwise, you can always message us, comment on one of our posts. Maybe we'll do a case suggestion post at some point. Yeah. And we'll collect the comments. So. Mm-hmm. We really love your guys' comments and feedback and suggestions for cases as well. Yeah, I have a couple case suggestions coming up, so that's awesome. But we love getting them sent to us. And if you don't already, make sure you follow us on Instagram at Podcast by Proxy. That's definitely where we're the most active and where we kind of announce anything. We don't always announce it before we announce it on the podcast, but I just kind of like announce things as they come up on there so yeah yeah it's just like a good way to keep up we do have some excited we do have some exciting things coming in the next like two to three weeks so Mm -hmm. i don't want you to miss out that's maybe some giveaways who knows maybe some free shit i mean i like free shit so maybe we're checking it out yeah anyway that's it for me what do you say joe no he's over our shit although one more thing that we are maybe gonna do that we'll maybe introduce this time and see how you guys feel about it Because we thought we needed to end this on a lighter note maybe more often because we frequently uh, leave a lot of cases unsolved as well, and that can be really frustrating. So I have a book called Untimely Demise, 
and it's a darkly humorous presentation of 365 Deadly Deeds by William Dylan Powell. And it's illustrated by Alex Calamaris. And it's essentially 365 mixed of like really logical, but also quite silly ways to die. So at the end of every episode, we are going to read one of these uh, just to lighten the mood a little. And by we, she means she. Oh God, I'm a terrible reader. You can do it. Okay, so this one's called The Sneaky Sabotage, a.k.a. Appliance and Bathtub. The bathtub is a place to relax and soak away your stress unless you add a plugged-in toaster. That's just plain murder by electrocution. In Hollywood, sparks fly left and right from a cinematic hailstorm of hairdryers, curling irons, toasters, and other appliances chucked into the bathtub. In real life, such occurrences are more and more rare, but just as deadly. While there's no guarantee that throwing an appliance in the bathtub will always do the trick, since the type of appliance and where it falls in relation to the tub's metal components, the size of the appliance heating element, and the actual composition of the water all play a factor. Tossing an appliance into any kind of heating element that is direct electricity to water connection is pretty much likely to ruin someone's day no matter what. That's it. I don't love that we're giving, like, a here's a way to murder someone at the end of every episode. The thing is, this one kind of says, like, guys, it's not as simple as it looks. Right. Okay. Got it. it. You gotta have the right water, the right appliance, the right amount of metal in the tub. You know... Anyone can't do it, is placement's what Placement's important. It is. You're right. That goes for a lot of things. I was about to say that. And with that... <laughs> Goodbye, men. Goodbye. I'll call you soon. Okay. Okay. Hey. Hey. Bye. How do I stop this shit? I'll stop it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fuck me.